Welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour, the podcast provides you with the knowledge and insights you need to achieve physical, mental, and financial well-being. I'm your host, Arlen Pickett, a business consultant who's passionate about helping people achieve a more balanced and healthier life. Each week, we'll deep dive into topics related to health and wealth, including retirement income planning, innovative healthcare solutions, alternative funded health plans, and specific actions individuals and business owners can take to gain control of their finances, have access to affordable quality health care, and achieve peace of mind. We'll also be joined by innovative experts who will share their knowledge and insights on prevalent topics. So, whether you're looking to grow your wealth or improve your health, you've come to the right place. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and empowered. Let's get started. All right, and welcome to another episode of the Health and Wealth Power Hour. I am your host, Harlan Pickett. Great to have you with us again. We have a very exciting show for you today. There's going to be a lot of knowledge shared. I hope that you guys can keep up with us because we're going to jump around to a lot of different stories. We're going to end with the Amish. What? What did I just say? That's right. We're going to end with the Amish, but we're going to start with hospitals. Hospitals? How are we going to get from the hospitals to Amish? Well, we're going to take a lot of detours between, but be sure and stay through the whole episode. You're going to be shocked at all of the cool things you're going to hear today. We are super honored to have Doug Johnson, who is a registered nurse, to be with us today. Doug has been in the healthcare industry for 30 plus years. He is intricate in helping hospitals in rural areas optimize their quality. He puts quality systems in place and helps them keep up with that. But more importantly, what he does is he helps them and put in place an internal champion for quality because that is the earmark of a good quality program. Doug, thank you for being with us today and welcome aboard the Health and Wealth Power Hour, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here today. All right. So let's jump right into this, man. You uh, you actually live in a couple of different states, right? Uh, you kind of move back and forth between New Mexico and Wisconsin. Is that correct? I do. Yeah, I have family in Wisconsin, and I also have family in New Mexico. So I I, I like to stick with family. So, all right, good deal. And and one of the things that those two states have in common is obviously a lot of rural hospitals, a lot of rural areas. Uh, don't have the the giant population of some of the other states like we do here in Texas, although we're kind of spread out in some cases. Uh, but you saw a need in the rural hospital area for not necessarily compliance, but for optimization of their quality systems. So t- talk a little bit about that journey and what you bring to those hospital systems. Yeah, so I, I was uh, I've been in working in quality for quite some time, and and uh, had a lot of people coming to me and asking me to come and work on their quality programs or be their quality director, if you will, in their hospitals. And um, one of the premises I have behind that is that I really think quality is a personal journey. It's a personal thing for the community, and I really think that the people that work in those communities need to be part of the quality. Um, quality directors don't do quality, but I won't go off on that tangent. Um, it's the people that actually do the work every day. So um, my premise was it didn't matter if you had five beds or you had a thousand beds uh, as far as the hospital is concerned. The CMS requires hospitals under their under their Medicaid um, and Medicare 
requirements to have quality oversight, to have somebody named as a quality person and to manage quality programs. That doesn't sound like a bad thing, but but in doing so, um, I really believe that you should take somebody that's local, train them up to do quality and manage that. There's a lot of different um, things that people do for quality, but there's really no standardization, if you will, on how quality is done. There's different flavors of process improvement, different flavors of how quality is done. And there's even a certified professional healthcare quality, CPHQ, that people are getting the certification for. And it gives you some knowledge about quality, but it doesn't tell you the day, the nuts and the bolts on how you actually manage quality. So my whole premise was to develop a training curriculum where I, um, I go into hospitals, I find a really good nurse, I find a really good tech or somebody from pharmacy or, or even lab, those folks are great too. And I bring them in locally, train them over a period of three months, give them standardized approaches to managing their governance structure for quality and how to do quality throughout their entire organization. And then from there, I, I work as a retainer after that to help them um, continually throughout the year with any accreditations that show up and how to manage those and facilitate them, their quality committees and help them with those, but really get them on a track to where they can, they can have a standardized and a organized quality management program within their organization. Yeah. And obviously having that type of program uh, that benefits everybody, but right. It, it doesn't just benefit the hospital. It clearly benefits the folks that come in are treated at that hospital. You want to make sure that the quality is there. Uh, I think that's the goal of every hospital is to provide quality health care and not have someone there longer than they should because they didn't receive that quality health care. Um, now, we we know that there definitely have been some shortcomings in that realm. We, we do hear about uh, a lot of infection and different issues that right. happen in hospitals. So these programs that are put in place, you said that they kind of can vary because when you go in and do an assessment, that assessment mm -hmm. can show where the shortcomings may be now and what needs to be addressed at a heavier, say, put more emphasis on a certain area versus something else. Yeah, absolutely. So you're looking at the strategy. You just said it perfectly, Harlan. There is an assessment that's done. Um, you know, in about three days, I can figure out in the assessment where the where the issues lie. Um, number one, the, the number one issue in quality and healthcare um, is leadership. Um, so, if if the if the leadership levels of quality, the C-suite people within a hospital system are not looking at quality as an important factor for their organization, you might as well turn around and walk out the door. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. You have to have that leadership to make it happen. Number one, and so you assess those things, work with that leadership though, and you develop a strategy to move forward in quality. And, and, and get the entire organization um, engaged with quality. So one of my huge premises in my, my big soapbox is that a quality director, even though the title is in your, in the name is in your title, quality, um, a quality director does not do quality. So they, they engage people, they train people, they support the people that are doing the work every day and touching the patient. So you've got to be able to work with those people, engage those folks, and help them do the job that they went into healthcare to do. In 30 years, I've never met an employee that came to work and said, I really want to hurt a patient today. Nobody does that. So the, the, the premise of any clinician that I've ever worked with has been that they really want to do a good job and they want to work for hospitals. And the other big premise that I put in place is physicians. 
engaging physicians and getting them involved. Um, and what I mean, I kind of hate the word engagement because it's something that you do to them, but you work with physicians and get their input on what quality of care is. And we have to remember that um, physicians, physicians aren't there for a career. Physicians gave up their 20s and 30s of their life to go to school. It's a lifestyle for them. And so many, many hospital systems are, are taking physicians out. Um, they're making management decisions without physicians' input and doing things without engaging the physicians. Um, we have, and, and, and in doing so, we're just hurting ourselves. We, we have to get physicians involved. Um, and, and that's, that's a, the premise of that. So. Well, let me ask you a question that I, I just thought about. It's obviously nothing that we kind of prepared for, but I'm interested in what your thought on this is. You talked about physicians being intricate into this process, right? They've got to, they've got to be bought in. Most of them, I would say the vast majority of physicians got in to help people, right? They didn't think they were going to get rich. Uh, sometimes it. some do, but quite honestly, most don't. Uh, the the enriched part of their lives is, is the impact that they get to make on some other people's lives. But in these hospitals you go to, you mentioned very specifically that if quality is not something that management is bought into and believes in, then it's going to be a very difficult road ahead. And, and, and I think your words were, you might as well just walk out the door. Absolutely. Well, what are your thoughts on the prohibition of physicians being unable to own hospitals? <laughs> wow, you just threw that one out, didn't you, Harlan? Um, <laughs> I completely disagree with the thought process that a physician can't own a hospital or, or a clinic or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I think we, we give physicians a, a bad name when we say they can't run businesses. Um, and, you know, and, and quite frankly, there isn't anything in their medical school that tells them how to design or develop a hospital or create a hospital or even manage a hospital after that. That, that, that. Having said that, though, I've met many physicians that are very good business leaders and could do that. So um, the prohibition for a physician own a, uh, to own a hospital, I completely against it. Um, and the reason why is as a customer, um, when I go to the hospital, I go to the emergency department or something like that. I'm not going there to see Doug in the quality department. I, I don't even know I exist. So let's get back to the basics here. We're trying to get physicians in contact with patients. We're trying to get nurses in contact with patients. Anybody that takes care of a patient, and please, I'm not excluding other caregivers. There's lots of them. But we're trying to get those folks in the relationship with the patient and the customer that you're trying to to, to get to. And, and that's why I'm spending my money. I'm spending my money for that. I'm not spending my money for CMS oversight and for CMS quality measures and, and all the regulatory regulatory stuff that goes behind it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, by the way, I think that a physician owned hospital would have a very different outlook that they would be managed differently, that they would have a different set of values that they would have a, different uh, processes in place on how to care for that patient because it would be more patient focused. Uh, you even look at a facility like Dr. Keith Smith's surgery center of Oklahoma and the kind of care people receive at a facility right. like that. 
And that tells you, I mean, there's lots of them, Dr. K up there in Mesquite. You know, we have a number of those, uh, the group that Sean Kelly has put together here in Texas, Texas Medical Management. There's tons of examples where physician-owned facilities are providing much better care and are centers of excellence compared to some of the issues that we have in hospitals across the country. So I, I think that is it is um, misaligned. Quite honestly, I think that it is misaligned to believe that physicians could not do a good job running a hospital. Um, sorry, let I threw me, that one out you, at you there, Doug. Well, let, me, <laughs> let me give you one example on this, Harlan. I think that hits home. And I'm going to I'm going to stay as vague as I possibly can, but I'm going to give you an example. So in a, in a certain system um, where um, something wasn't quite where it needed to be, I'm just going to be that vague about the about the hospital. Um, there were decisions made, decisions to continue surgery or not to continue surgery based on the condition that was present. Um, the, the surgeon that I worked with um, decided to take all patients to another hospital to do surgeries until this condition was better. And the leadership of that organization, for fear of losing lots of revenue, did not want to stop doing surgeries in that place and elected and made the decision to continue to do those. So I'm going to ask you this. If you're a patient, um, would you want to follow what the surgeon was doing or what the leadership of that organization was doing? And I've seen it time and time again. Physicians will do what is right for the patient over and over again, hands down. Now, are there good physicians and bad physicians? Of course there are. But sure. in my in my experience, um, that I would always lean towards the decision of the physician. But you know, it's interesting as well, when you're when you're able to get the data from various different sources that show physician scores, if they mm -hmm. include all the different, you know, across the board, all the scores uh, that, that they look at, one of the things that I think is very noteworthy is that the same physician who may be, a, let's just say, a 92 percentile over here at this hospital doing this procedure maybe a 70 something at this other facility doing the exact same procedure. And it, a right. lot of times when you look at why that is, it is because of, let's just use infection rates as one. That's a direct representation of the hospital, not of the surgeon themselves. Because, the sur because they look at all the data, right? They look at the entire pathway that yeah. this patient went yeah. through, including the aftercare. Well, the surgeon themselves was not actually present for the aftercare. They weren't the ones that were coming to the room. They weren't, they weren't changing bandages or doing whatever it was that was part of the process. So the fact that that person ended up with an infection actually had nothing to do with the surgeon. But when you look at the data, you can see that the facility had a bigger role to play in some of these things than that. That's exactly right. It's a team approach. And when you're looking at scores that are hospital-based, um, it's, 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 it's a team approach. There's many people involved that's contributing to that. And the other thing I would add to that is, um, are those measures correct? Is that the right measure? And so, um, yeah, there are some great measures out there. They're outcome measures. They're after the fact. But the fact of the matter is I interviewed over 50 people in the community and I asked them if they ever heard of CMS Five Star. And then I asked those same people if they ever heard of the leapfrog scoring for hospitals. Not a single person was able to tell me that they've heard of those. So the, the problem with that is how does the customer define quality 
we need to get back to those basics and define quality based on one clinicians we went to school we know what quality is measure what we know but two ask the customers what their needs are for for quality and what does that mean to them so that's critically important to get back to that level and i agree and unfortunately in most cases the only way a consumer can judge quality and this is no way to judge it at all is is the doctor or facility in my network <laughs> i mean if they yeah. are they had to be you know the insurance company had to be doing some kind of vetting process to make sure that the doctor i was going to see was a good doctor and the facility i'm going to is a good facility right <laughs> right well <laughs> right. oh, guess what I hate to break it to you but quality doesn't matter and I know that's a I know that's a blunt statement, but but quality doesn't matter. Quality is implied. So when I asked over those fifty people, when I asked those people what they expected out of healthcare, it all came down to access to healthcare and cost. So it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If I can't get access to healthcare, and if I can't afford that healthcare, then the last thing I'm thinking about is the quality of that healthcare. So I'm just going to where I can get in, and we'll think about that as an afterthought. Yeah, and, and that's a shame because that actually should be the number one. Number one should be, I want to make sure that where I'm going is good quality. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Because the outcome is all that really matters, Doug. The outcome. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I if I got in and and I got the care I, I, I needed and it killed me, well, how did that work out for you, right? <laughs> should have stayed home. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> But there is no, no easy to quantify way for a consumer to find out what quality is. I mean, what do we do right now? Let's let's uh, let's ask our friends. Let's get on Facebook or get on somewhere and say, "Hey, anyone know a good neurologist? Mm -hmm, you want to mm -hmm, get your neurologist mm -hmm. recommendation from Facebook? Really? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Word of mouth is still probably the most powerful uh, marketing strategy there is. So, yep. It really is. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, I heard a story where this person was looking for a neurologist. Uh, they ended up going a different direction, thank goodness. But they were told, you know, Aunt, Aunt Joe's uh, uh, cousin had this guy and he did a great job. You know, she's, she has no complaints. Well, at the end of the day, what they really found out was after the third surgery, her friend was just perfectly happy with that because he nailed it that third time. The first two times, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I guess that the measure of that was, well, at the in the end, I survived. So That's right. Currently. <laughs> Currently. <laughs> but I think it is important that people do realize there are ways to measure quality and if your health plan is built properly and this is definitely for you employers out there if your health plan is built pro properly there is a way to navigate to get to the quality facilities at a lower cost so now you're getting what you're looking for you're getting affordability and you're getting quality so that's going to translate to better outcomes uh, a healthier overall staff and what is that going to give you a happier overall staff it just caught them cost them less and they got better care uh, I know that you're uh, you're really championing that up with the Free Market Medical Association, and you're you're up in actually Wisconsin right now talking to a bunch of folks about that and doing a little bit of stuff with Matt Ord up there. So, man, 
I know that's kind of on your own time and on your own dime, as it were. So I, I applaud you for up there promoting and, and running the cause uh, up there, Doug. I really do. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's jump into another one of both of our uh, favorite places and favorite things to talk about, and that is direct primary care. I know mm -hmm. that you have been uh, really working diligently in that world to help promote them and to help direct primary care doctors uh, understand how to get more involved in the employer space. Uh, that's a struggle that many of them have. And especially in some of the rural areas uh, where you have access to and where you're working with hospitals at, you've seen that as well. So tell me about some of the uh, actions that you're taking. And if someone out there is listening that can help you do that, what type of partners are you looking for? And what kind of help could, could you be uh, presented and offered? Yeah, um, you know, Harlan, you and I um, met because of this whole question, and um, I reached out to you to ask you some questions, and you've been really helpful in doing that. Um, and um, I guess the whole premise is this. I'm working with a direct primary care physician now, very good physician, um, emergency trained, and um, does a really, really great job. And um, And we're just working on this business and working with employer groups to help them understand um, this direct primary care model and, and, and the new approach moving forward for cash services. Now, there's a lot of things I'd like to say about it. One, you already talked a little bit about like quality and efficiency. And I do wanna just point on this for a second. This is a struggle that I have. And um, people think that if I can get in to see a doctor tomorrow or today, and I only have to pay $50 um, or it's part of my plan already and it's really cheap, then the quality must not be there. And um, and th that's not the case. And so if you're an employer listening to this, for example, and you're a plumber, you're an electrician, or you're a steel worker, or whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that your business does, you have to remember that efficiency equals quality and reduce cost. And I'm a Lean Six Sigma black belt. I do process improvement stuff. And I've seen it time and time and time again. And it's very difficult for people to grasp the concept that if we don't throw more money at it, that it can't be better. And no, the fact of the matter is, is if you make it more efficient and you make it, um, you make it cost less, your quality actually is better. And so um, I know you see that in your businesses. It's the same thing in healthcare. And so that's why you're getting those cheap rates and able to do that. With that, the reason why I talked with Harlan and others as well is I don't get to just go to an employer group and say, hey, I've got a direct primary care clinic and uh, it's better if you just do this. Their perspective, and I think their perspective initially is until they understand this more, is that, oh, this is, you know, I just had a 15% increase on my premiums for all of my employees. And now you're asking to pay me to pay you a per employee per month so that they can have access to a doctor and that's just an additional cost. No, 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 no. That's, that, that is the problem um, that I think a lot of people look at, but we have to look holistically at what the problem is for the employer. It's not just DPC. There's the insurance companies, there's the stop loss, there's the pharmacy benefit managers. They're all of those things they have to look at holistically. And oh, by the way, direct primary care. So direct primary care is the foundation of the entire model. It is not the model by itself. So we have to work together as groups and as teams to help employers 
um, demystify and make this less complex. Right now, it feels like it's too complex for people. It's too complex for me at, on days. And that's because of my ignorance. So I'm not saying that it's complex for everybody, but it's too complex and we have to simplify it. We have to make it simpler because what they've done before, think about what they've done before. They've had a broker. They had a relationship with the broker. Maybe even the broker took them out to lunch. Maybe their kids play football on the same team, their friends, whatever else. But the broker comes to me in one week a year and says, here's what you got to pay. And you, you scoff and you're concerned about it, but yeah, I'll sign the dotted line. I'll make the payment and I don't have to think about it again for another year. That's getting rid of the complexity. And that's what they've done, even though it costs more and your employees are less satisfied and they're less healthy because they're not being managed. Um, it's still the easier route. So we've got to figure out an easier route for them to make that tr transition and change. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Doug, and it, it's interesting, you know, you talked about all the benefits of DPC and how they can do it so much cheaper. But I think one of the biggest things that people don't even think about is direct primary care. In most cases, they don't accept any type of insurance. They don't do insurance. They don't do Medicare. They don't Medicaid. The Correct. amount of administrative burden that is, that is off of them because of that. So you want to see a place where people can save money. You don't have to have a staff of four, five, six, 10 people just submitting claims. Yes. If you wonder why these doctors can do it so much better and they're so much efficient, more efficient, it's because they don't deal with all that administrative burden. And that okay. is another big thing people don't think about. How can this doctor do this? Why can they have such a smaller group of people here that they're not seeing you know, thousands that are in their practice and people can just pay this much and then get this benefit? Their first thought, just like you said, is it must not be very good. In fact, there's probably some secret alley you have to go down and you got to know the knock or something to be able to get in the door, right? And uh, right. You know, they're going to, you're right, there's going to be all of these things and hoops I have to jump through to get through this. No, there's not no. at all. Uh, it's it, It'll be so shockingly easy. You're going to wonder what happened. And that guy couldn't have really been a doctor because he just spent 45 minutes with me talking to me about what's going on <laughs> and, and, you know, putting the, and he didn't even refer me to somebody else. I And he didn't give me any medications. Wait, what's going on? I, I thought that's what doctors did is refer and give medications. They actually talked to me and want to know how they can help me. They listened to me and we devised a plan to move forward together. Wait a second. What is all this craziness about? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The literature shows clearly that for every doctor working in the current model, um, it, they require at least five administrative staff to, to do the work behind the scenes. So um, in a DPC model, that's not the case. And, um, you know, being a lean guy that I am and I like lean, um, you probably, you, you know, the, the pilots for Southwest Airlines, for example, I don't think you'd know this. And most people don't know this, but they'll help clean the airplane. And the reason why they help clean the airplane is because that's the next thing that needs to be done before they can actually do their job. It's not the best use of their time, you might think, but no, it, they can't do their job. They're going to be sitting there anyway. I always said, if the day I see a physician clean a, clean a patient's room will be the day that we've gotten there. And I've seen that. I've seen that you know years ago. And the doctor that I'm working with, actually, he's one of them that did it. So um, 
they're engaged in everything. So yes, they will spend an hour with you. That is, I've seen it, I've watched it. They spend an hour consistently every time with the patient. Um, they will go through everything with you. They're the ones that are are cleaning the room after you leave um, quite, quite often. They're the ones that are calling up your physician and doing the referrals. And behind the scenes, you show up to this doctor you don't even realize what they've done, but they just spent the, the previous 30 minutes looking through your chart, looking at your labs, looking at your history. They are 100% prepared before you even show up, and they're working intently for you with a passion to make you well and better. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I have I've actually had one person complain about how long they were at the doctor, but it wasn't because <laughs> they were in the waiting room, and it wasn't because they were in the examination room waiting for the doctor. It's because that guy just wanted to know everything. He wanted to yeah. know everything about me. I mean, I just thought I was going to be in there for five or 10 minutes and get to go on, but he just kept on and we were in there for 45 minutes and I'm like, I need to go. I didn't, That's I didn't right. plan on being here this long. That's right. <laughs> and I just laughed and I said, but what was the experience like about really talking about it? Well, that was all great, but I just wasn't ready for that. I've never had a doctor care that much and ask those questions. Well, yeah. what a shame, because when we have had some of those questions asked before, Doug, where do we get that? The 10,000 page intake form, right? The uh, When you sit there for days in the in the uh, room, when you're when you are in the uh, waiting room before you get to see the doctor for the first time and you're just going through pages and pages yeah. and pages yeah. of all of these things. Mm -hmm. That's the only time you got asked that the doctor never even asked you about these things. It's such yeah. a different experience. And if you're not ready for it, it can be shocking. <laughs> That's a personal experience. Very personal. Yep. And Absolutely. it's supposed to be, right? It's it supposed is. to be. You're, you're not supposed to be just a, a cog in the machine, as it were, which is unfortunately with 70% of our physicians working for hospitals, working for uh, insurance companies or working for private equity. They're a cog in the machine. And so they treat you just like you are too, unfortunately. That's just... Uh, the, the place that we've we've got to. Well, and I think this is a good point to talk about the fact that when you go to your D DPC, you're a customer, you're not right. a patient. And this is my soapbox about this. And if I can just expand on it just a little bit, but um, you know, we've been calling patients patients forever. And you know, there there is an appropriate time for that when a patient is very ill and sick and and in the hospital or whatever, you can call them a patient. But Patients are not always patients. Patient comes from the word from Latin, which is patty, which is P-A-T-I. Hopefully I pronounced that right, but it means suffering. And so in that concept, if we look at people as sufferers when they come to buy our services, then they're dependent on us to give them whatever they expect to get. And that that's a really, I think it's a really bad um, thought process. I think we need to think of them as customers. They're returning customers. They're buying our services. The revenue comes from them that the service, you know, you got to provide the service to them so that they'll come back and do it again. So, so using the word customer is critically important, I believe, and treating people as customers is critically important in this model. Well, yeah, it, it is very different that you, you treat someone that's just a matter of being respectful, right? Treat them with respect, treat them with dignity, treat them as they're wanted. I want That's you right. to be here. I want to care for you. And I want you to have such a wonderful experience 
like going, I mean, I'm not saying going to the doctor is a wonderful experience, uh, but you, but you want it to be such a personal experience and to, to build that relationship like we did as kids. And I'm, I'm going to, I had this epiphany the other day. I'm going to run this by you. This is the first time I've even talked about this on a podcast. So maybe everyone's going to laugh at me and point and say, ha ha, you're, you, you don't know what you're talking about. And that's okay. It's your show. It's, yeah, there you go. <laughs> but it seems to me we still have one place in primary care that is even part of a system where individuals get more time and actually are able to build a relationship with their customers or their patients, if they prefer to call them that. And that is in pediatrics. Because still today, pediatricians seem to spend more time with the kids than what you would see. You're say, yeah, I, and I'm saying from experience for my daughter, as she moved into a big girl doctor, her very first visit out away from a pediatrician, and it was an unfortunate situation like we talk about, that she had five minutes. The doctor was in and out. She didn't have any idea what was going on. She's like, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Where mm -hmm. I want, I want my little girl doctor again, the one that sat here and I knew, and we talked and how are you feeling and all these other kind of things that doctor was just in and out. Um, yeah. you know, we, we got her in, into, um, our direct primary care there. I mean, she was kind of at school at the time that that one happened. And so we got her into our direct primary care now. And she's like, dad, yeah, this is it. I'm, I'm happy now. I, I like this doctor that's talking to me and having that. But I think that's a shock to the system. We start talking now about how many young adults don't go to the doctor, don't like it. And it's in this age group where they've transitioned out of their personal relationship with a pediatrician to a big boy or big girl doctor. And I don't mm -hmm. think that they're prepared. They're not prepared for that shock to the system of a doctor that doesn't seem to look at you as anything but a number. Yeah, I think you have a really good thought there. And I haven't thought about it myself, Harlan. Uh, it's been a long time since my kids were in pediatrician offices, but I can remember back and you're right. Um, we should be looking towards other models that seem to be doing things successful and finding those successes and how do we apply those in other places as well. You know, I know pediatricians, they're, they're very good at what they do. Um, they don't get communication the same way that we do with adults. So, you know, ob observing and seeing what's happening, what is the dynamics between the parents and the children? That's important. They look at that. Everything is critically important when they do that. They know that. And so they probably developed a, a practice in doing that a different way. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with it. I've never worked with pediatrics, but um, you're absolutely right. That should be something we should focus on a little bit. Yeah, and it's nothing that I really thought about either. It just it just struck me one day. I have no idea why I was thinking about it. It just struck me one day what a different experience it is still mm -hmm. to talk to folks and the way that a pediatrician interacts with them and with their kids is so different than the experience that we hear about in a traditional uh, healthcare setting now. Uh, obviously not DPC, not advanced primary care, not some of these other ones, but in a traditional setting of what people come to expect with their five to eight minutes with a doctor, it's very right. different in a pediatric uh, setting. So I applaud pediatricians, first of all, for not getting out of that game, for doing all the things that you just said. But also, I don't think that my kids ever in any time that they had, and they had a few little things here or there, they were ever referred to a specialist for something that was unnecessary. 
There was not a, that the pediatrician, just like a primary care doctor can do, can take care of so much and they want to take care of it because they don't see any reason. They don't want to lose that child, right? They want to continue with that relationship and be part of that child's life. And I think that is, that's the system we remember when we were younger, Doug, right? That's the relationships we even have with our primary care doctors, because I was thinking about, well, how was it whenever I moved from pediatrician to the family doctor? It really wasn't a change. I mean, I actually knew that doctor already from going with mom or dad to the doctor and being around. So I already knew Dr. Moore. I knew who he was. So whenever I started going to Dr. Moore, it wasn't a shock to the system. There was plenty of time to talk and talk about whatever was going on. The very first time I visited him, he had already looked at my chart and looked at what had going on my entire childhood through the PD. It was just continuing that relationship into being an adult. Uh, that's a, that's the type of things that we miss now in our current traditional healthcare system. Yeah. And I would, it, it, what comes across my mind, and since we're just brainstorming here, if somebody's listening, send us the information, but there's, there's obviously a different management system or the system is different for uh, family practice physicians versus pediatricians based on RVUs, referral rates and everything else that they're expected sure. to do. Maybe that has something to do with it as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's jump into another subject. I I do want to, I want to step back to hospitals for just a second, because I know that you focus on rural hospitals and we are seeing a huge number of those rural hospitals in this country shut down. Yes. What can be done to turn that around, Doug, do you have any insights on that? I mean, I know, no, I know none of those hospitals have probably called you and said, Doug, how can we keep from shutting our doors? Maybe they have, but working with these hospitals and looking at their processes and doing these assessments, what have you seen that some of them may be able to accomplish to keep from shutting their doors? Yeah, I, you know, I look at it from a quality lens. And so if, uh, you know, if you're a hospital administrator or whatever, there's a lot of other things that come into play, like what are the services that you're providing? What what are the doctors that you have? Doctors are critically important. Having the right doctors on staff to be able to manage it and staff, nurses and, and staff to be able to do it. So staffing is a, is, is really been a number one concern of all hospitals across the nation right now. So that's a big deal. But let's look at it from a quality lens just for a second. And uh, one of the things that I really, really struggle with is um, is efficiency, process efficiency, and how things operate and work. And so, quite frankly, if you don't have a good, efficient process and how things work, then you can't afford to be in business. And um, just to give you some examples, you know, if if you if you um, if you cause a stage three pressure injury in a hospital system, you can you can bank on the fact that you're going to have to pay an extra probably twenty five thousand dollars for that inpatient stay because that's going to extend the length of stay for that patient. So poor quality leads to that. Not to mention the lawsuits that may come later. Um, the other pieces too is like emergency departments and efficiencies in those emergency departments. Um, one of the measures that most hospitals have is a left without being seen, time to treatment, that kind of stuff. Uh, poor efficiency in those systems, and hospitals are losing millions of dollars every day through patients that come in, sit for an hour or two, and say, I'm not staying and leaving because I'm waiting too long. Left without being seen, they call it. Make your system more efficient. Make it make it, um, make it it smooth 
run smoother. There's techniques and ways to do that, 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 that I've implemented in many places that make those things smoother and efficient and you patients don't leave. Now, how does that relate to quality? Well, if I'm having chest pain and I need an EKG and I need to have, you know, I need to have an angioplasty or a stent put in my heart within 90 minutes um, and I'm sitting in the waiting room for two or three hours, guess what? I'm not meeting that evidence-based care. I'm not, it's not going to happen. And quite frankly, I might die. So um, by making things more efficient and smoother, you actually improve the quality of, of patient care as well. So I really struggle with the efficiency side of things. And, and again, I'm going to go back to this. We throw money at these systems. We throw money at them. We just invested $2 billion into this hospital system, and we took taxpayers' money to do it. So it should be better. No, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. It gets worse when you throw money at a system and you don't develop the processes and standardization and the tools and the efficiencies to make them better. And more importantly, you're worried about staffing. People don't want to work there. Well, why don't they want to work there? I told you they didn't go to work because they wanted to harm people. They're, they, they, they are intrinsically motivated. Intrinsically motivated means they go in because they didn't get out of bed in the morning because they're like, yeah, I'm going to get a paycheck today. That, that's not why they get out of bed in the morning. They get out of bed in the morning because they want to take care of patients and they want to do the best that they can. But how do you think a nurse feels when they can't get that patient in that has chest pain and, and get an EKG on them and they know they're out in the waiting room dying, but they can't do anything about it? They're not going to work there very long. They're going to leave. And so it, it, it's just this big, huge, full circle. And so some some of the some of the systems and some of the hospitals that shut down, um, they earned it. Quite frankly, they earned it. They didn't look at how they could manage their systems efficiently and effectively. Um, I know there's a lot of other things. I know the margins are very, very tight for most hospitals, and I'm not trying to pick on them by any means at all. What they're getting paid from Medicaid and Medicare and what they're getting reimbursed and what it costs, um, it just, it's not in alignment. Um, and so there is just the financial reasons of why hospitals cannot stay in business. But um, what I always tell people is control what you can control. And you can control the efficiency, you can control the quality culture, and you can control those processes that lead to better outcomes for your patients. Do those things first, and everything else will come after that. Yeah, that, that's some great points there. And, you know, one of the things that I want to point out is notwithstanding the folks that were working at those hospitals that are now seeking employment because the hospital shut down, the communities themselves are really the places that suffer the most because now they don't have as easy an access. Once again, here we go to access, access to healthcare that they may have. Now, to your point, maybe the hospital earned it because even though people had access to it, they weren't providing very good healthcare. And because they right. weren't providing very good health care, it was right, a self-fulfilling prophecy that they were going to fail. And maybe the local people had stopped going there already because they said, well, that's where you go to die. <laughs> you know, that you, you, oh, you want to, and I've heard mm -hmm. that, right? I know you've heard it too. You've heard people in an area say, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to travel two hours before I go mm -hmm. to XYZ hospital because I've never heard anything good that happened there. That's right. And I want to be really, really clear as I talk about this, but um, people are not the problem. Processes are the problem. And, and go back to my, my my very old school lean terminology and thought processes. And no, I'm not just reciting from a textbook. I truly, truly believe it. People don't fail. Processes fail. 
And so, um, you know, it's it's really the system and the structures and the and the management systems that are in place that 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 make people fail in those things. But it's not the people; they're not coming to work to to create that. You're right, but the problem lies in what those processes and systems, the the bad ones do, and that's create a a toxic culture in many cases. Yeah, and it does. so that culture, then the even the people, uh, as you mentioned earlier, even the people that have the best intentions at heart, can't do the things that they want to do because the culture, the processes, the that doesn't allow them to do that. Which of course is why people leave, and why ultimately, right. and I think we're seeing this over and over because the one of the number one reasons why I have seen these hospitals say we have to close is we can't find help. Yeah. Well, if yeah. you can't find help, why? Because there's people out there that want jobs. There's people out there in the healthcare world that want to work. And it's not mm -hmm. because, you know, you're out in a rural area. I go back to what you just said. It's because of the leadership of that location, of that particular hospital, and the processes that they have in place and the culture that is there is not conductive to attracting and retaining quality employees. That's right. And they're intrinsically motivated to go in and do a great job and they need an environment in which they can do so. So that's what they want to do. I, I'll give you a side note that's kind of interesting. But, you know, the first thing I do when I go to any place I work for, um, the first thing I do the first day is find out where the employers are parking. And if those employees are parking right in the front where the patients are supposed to be parking, that tells me a lot about their culture. And um <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you work at a facility and you're parking up at the front, think about what that really means. Uh, I agree with you that to me, that goes back to the, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those that return the shopping cart and those that don't. That kind of goes <laughs> back to me. There are, there's really only two people, two kinds of people in the world, right? That That's it. <laughs> so think about which one you are. And then, and then think about why you are that way. I think that will tell you a lot about yourself. All right. So Absolutely. we've talked about quality and you and I touched on this for just a minute. And we're going to, we're going to kind of slip back over to DPC for just a second before we jump over to the Amish, because I'm very interested to hear how some of those meetings went. But one of the things that we have run into, you have run into, I have talked to uh, physicians about, especially direct primary care physicians, is this concept of quality. Now, inherently, we think of these doctors that have broke away from these systems because of all the problems that are there and started their own practice because they were sick of not being able to actually practice medicine and having to fulfill these roles and do administrative things and all the things that they didn't sign up for. They weren't able to practice medicine in the way that they felt was best helping their clients that they got indirect primary care. And what we want to believe is that means that they're just good people and just good doctors. Hmm. But there's nothing there really to tell us why they started that practice. Now, and we know many, many, both of us know many, many direct primary care doctors that I just told their story. I just told the story of why they walked away because yeah. they really cared about people and they saw this is the way that they were going to have to do it. Whether yep. they were in uh, independent practice, I even know some that were specialists that stepped away from systems where they were specialists to become direct primary care. I know folks that were hospitalists that stepped away to become direct primary care. But I've also heard stories of some 
that could no longer practice medicine within a certain system because of troubles that they had move to other states and also offer a cash membership that is similar, I guess you can say, or even call themselves direct primary care doctors. Mm -hmm. That may not be the best doctor. And it may, it certainly is not the one that you would want to be uh, taking care of your company or taking care of your family. But how do we find out who that is? And on the quality side of it, what are you seeing as some of the issues that we need to address as we see more and more opportunities to get direct primary care plans? And I'm going to say that to have health plans built around direct primary care. Yeah. And boy, that's a big, big question. And um, yeah, my, my initial premise is just this, just because you accept cash payments and um, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that it, it's a good it's a good service, if you will, or a good quality service. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, when I was at, well, I asked one physician, I wish I knew her name, I'd, I'd mention her, but um, I asked one physician how she managed quality at the Free Market Medical Association conference. And she looked at me and kind of thought for a minute and she said attrition. And I thought, well, that, you know, that's, that's, that's a pretty good definition. And it is. In, it is. Yeah. And, and from the, from the free market um, concepts, um, yeah, quality um, is going to be determined by the customer. And that was my premise at the very beginning. You don't get to define quality, your customers defining quality. So if that means leaving and going away, then that's how they just defined it for you. So that's okay. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is, um, is we're all clinicians and as a clinician, um, we went to school to understand how to care for patients. We know what evidence-based practice is. We know what all these things are. Um, we can define quality. I don't need the federal government to come in and tell me this is what quality means. Because um, now we're chasing, now we start chasing the grade and we start looking at all these other factors. You know, this quality measures that the federal government uses is, you know, there, there may be, I, I, I'll guess and just throw out maybe 50% accurate. Could be a coding issue. It could be a documentation issue. It could be an actual issue. We don't know. There's just all kinds of garbage in there. So, as a clinician, define your quality. Define what it is that you you call quality. And in and yeah, we have to educate our customers sometimes on what quality means within healthcare. Just like the bridge I drove over to get to my house, that there's quality measures with that. I just expect it to not fall down when I drive over it, but there's quality measures with that and they have to educate me on what those are. So that's fine too. So we can get to that level. Um, but we have to be able to, we have to be able to define what that quality is. Cause I really think there's a big black hole there. And just because I accept cash payments, oh, it sounds like it's cheaper and it's great. Um, but is it better? Well, we have to be able to educate people and let them know that it's better. And my biggest fear on this is that if we ever in the free market concepts in this country start to get challenged, which we're, you know, I guess Keith Smith with the uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma would tell you he's already been challenged many, many times and other people too. But if we start to really get challenged with the services that we provide, they're going to hit us with quality. They're going to hit us with that. Yeah. Because that that's a message where they can say, Really, you can get an MRI for $600. That's just a garbage piece of equipment over there. Can't read the images. It's not worth doing. And, and you know, they can't even tell you whether or not that's a, that, that, that MRI was good enough to, to make a clinical decision based on that. And so they're going to start hitting us with quality. So we have to proactively get really engaged with what we determine as quality 
um, within our own practices. And I'm not asking people to have oversight. I'm not asking people to come together with the same measures. I'm not there yet. It's really just about each individual area. But if you're buying, if you're, for example, in a DPC taking money from an employer group for all of their employees, and you're telling them that they're, you're going to manage their health care, and you're going to keep wellness for them, and you're going to reduce their absenteeism from work, and they're going to be happier because they have you as a doctor, well, by golly, you better measure that, and you better provide it back to me, because if I'm the owner of that company, and I'm accountable for the contracts that I sign and do, I want those service level agreements back to me. I want to know how well you're actually performing against what you said you were going to do. No, I, I think that is a very, very, very valuable insight right there because the whole premise of what we're doing, the whole reason we're putting a plan together around direct primary care is to move some money away from that claims bucket, right? If if we're saying we're going to help your folks be healthier and the, all the services that happen here in this direct primary care office don't have to come out of your claims. And yeah. not only that, but we're going to reduce the amount of uh, specialist referrals because this doctor can do so much more than what's going on in the traditional system. And we're going to reduce the number of hospitalizations right kind of down that same pathway. We're going to reduce the number of needed surgeries. We're going to reduce the number of all of these things, right? The, the, even the, the higher level medications that your folks may be getting put on the absenteeism because they're not properly controlling their diabetes uh, the absenteeism because they're not properly controlling, say, their their uh, thyroid issues or even some of the women's health issues that have been coming to light more and more these days. You've got doctors that are better trained to handle that. And more than that, they have the time and the inclination, right. quite honestly, the time right. and the inclination to do it uh, crazily enough. But if you don't track those things, you can't show the employer that there was any difference. Right. Right. And, and let's face it, I'm not an employer. I'm not going to throw money at the problem. I just got done talking about that earlier on. We don't throw money at problems and just, and, and figure out that it's going to get better. Hope that it's going to get, hope's not a strategy by the way, but we're going to hope that it gets better. No, no, no. We as DPCs, we as clinicians need to put our money where our mouth is. We know that caring for people more efficiently will reduce the cost and provide better quality. We've got to show that we're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the other side, if you're not showing that, then you're risking uh, the the opportunity for folks not to to believe you and to leave you, as it were, to go with that to go with that doctor that is doing that. And here is actually the worst part, in my opinion: you're missing the opportunity for the entire movement because if they then see that you didn't do this and you're not keeping track of it, they can make the wrongful assumption that no one in this cash pay world, no one in this membership world is doing that. There's no numbers to look at. I think I'm going to go back to a BUCA plan. I'm going to go back to a more traditional plan because I don't see that I'm saving anything here anyway. And now we've missed the opportunity to get a, to, to capture a group and for them to be the spokesperson for us, right? For, because that's what it is. You see more and more of these groups uh, I know Matt has had, uh, Matt Ord up there in Wisconsin has had great success with these companies that are now 
the biggest proponents of direct primary care, the biggest proponents of, of uh, direct contracting in an area that for years had been a desert for this kind of stuff, yeah. right? They just didn't accept it at all. And these are employers that have one after another success stories. There is no better way to get that out here. As a uh, you know, as a broker, consultant, you know, plan builder, whatever you want to call me, um, you as uh, someone who is a, a real promoter of these things, you're going out there, you're talking about these uh, plans, you're talking about direct primary care, so you're an advocate for that. Even Matt and what he's doing, we can say all we want to, but it's the employers with true case studies and real life successes that are going to make the big change. That other employers are going to hear this. They're going to say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Yep. You had this big a change and you were able to track that and you have hard data that shows this. Tell me more. Wow. You're talking about giving the employer and even the customer the, the, the power to evaluate the service that they purchase and decide whether or not they want that or not. What a novel concept. <laughs> <laughs> who would have thought such a thing would happen it's almost like giving a rating on amazon or google or something right <laughs> wow how many times do you decide if you're going to purchase something and you got two things that look exactly the same and one's 2.5 and one's 4.5 <laughs> right yeah. and maybe yeah. they're the same price or within a couple of bucks to each other which one are you going to choose right i mean it's this is it, it's kind of interesting to me but in the healthcare world, this is what we do. One's 2.5, one's 4.5. The 4.5 cost half the price of the 2.5 and employers every day are buying the 2.5. Every day they're buying the 2.5, 2.5, 2.5 because I recognize the name yeah. of the one associated with 2.5. I'm not sure what this 4.5 is. And I see it's got a lot of good ratings, but hmm, I don't know about that. I've never heard of this. Yep, yep, that's very true. Yeah, the, it, it, it healthcare is one of those crazy places where folks do not shop the same way they do for anything else. And I know we've beat that horse to death in many other episodes before. All right. Yeah. The moment you've been waiting for. Oh, yeah. OK. Domish. <laughs> so you made your pilgrimage from. Uh, uh, New Mexico up to Wisconsin, uh, spreading the word and the advocacy of the Free Market Medical Association. You had the true honor of sitting down with some leaders in that community because they have been cash pay for years, right? They've been in a whole different healthcare model for years. But in the last certain amount of time, you can probably tell us a little bit more what they told you it's become a little more difficult for them to even find those services. So tell me a little bit about that journey and then what you were, the insights you were able to provide them on why things have changed. Yeah. Well, what, a, you know, all I can say, I, what, what I'll tell you is what an honor, what an honor to be uh, invited to talk to them and learn from them. Um, you know, the, the, my model for the year, I think, is is going to be back to the basics. And I think, uh, and not just in the healthcare front, but in many other fronts as well, but back to the basics is critically important. Um, if anybody knew um, my wife, which I wish everybody did, she's a great woman. She, she, I always joke with her and she, every sentence she states always ends in a question mark. And it's kind of a joke, but um she asked me when we were here, we were talking about the Free Market Medical Association, and and she's she's highly engaged with that as well. Um, 
she said, well, I wonder what the Amish do. And I said, well, oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't know what they do. And so I have no idea, even very basic things. I'm sure people know. So like any idiot, I, you know, I went out and I searched Google to see what the Amish do. Well, that's, that's a bad way to find information as well, because then you get all these subjective responses about the Amish. And so I just went up and met with one of the Amish elders locally over the summer um, he welcomed me in his home and his wife and him both talked to me and I started talking to him about what they do for healthcare. Um, and, uh, they were very, very impressed and, and had a great thought process around, um, the free market medical association, because like you said, Harlan, they, they, they pay cash for their services. Um, they're very adamant about not taking money from the government for anything. Um, they pay their way and they do that. And so, and if a, if a community member cannot pay for it, uh, they all come together and they pay for it for them. And, um, you know, some of these bills are pretty high, and pretty expensive, but they they cover it and they take care of each other, not just in healthcare, but, you know, if somebody's, you know, one of the buildings here last year, two years ago, burnt down and it was the, the store, we call it the, we call it here in Wisconsin, the Amish Walmart. Um, and uh, the store burned down and within a week in the middle of the winter time, they rebuilt this store for this guy and put it back up. So that's what they do. They take care of things for each other. So um, they invited me back uh, last week to speak with their uh, local or their regional Amish group. Um, I thought I was going to go talk to about three or four people. When I got there, uh, I found out there's about 100 people there. Um, oh, big wow. deal. It was a really big <laughs> deal. And... Um, so what they, um, and, and not to spend too much time on it, but what they, they try to take care of many of their medical needs within their own communities. They have uh, experts within their community that they teach and they, they spread information about how to take care of wounds and burns and, and other ailments. And they, they help each other with those so that they don't need to have services. And uh, so in talking to them, I thought, well, what do I have to offer them? Because uh, guess what? We think we have this great new movement called the Free Market Medical Association. Guess what? There's nothing new about it. They've been doing it for forever. So a little humbling um, and, uh, and a little sets you back there. So I asked some questions. And, and what, I, what I found out, I asked them, um, I asked them if they felt like healthcare was getting better or worse over the last five years. And it was a pretty unanimous decision that, yeah, healthcare is definitely getting worse. And so I started trying to figure out why it's getting worse. And, um, well, getting access to that care is a problem. And here's the other problem. They can't find doctors that will just give them a cash price. <laughs> and it seems, seems really odd, doesn't it? It, would see, it seems very odd to them. Um, you know, I just bought some chairs from an Amish person, a great guy named Mose, and and he makes beautiful chairs. And I deal with him directly and I say, how much is it? And he tells me and he says, what size do you want? And I tell him and we negotiate it and I give him cash and we're everybody's happy. And that's the business that they're in. And so why can't they go and get that for healthcare? So I had to um, I had to take a route in this conversation that really talked about um, our healthcare models and how that's impacting them. And uh, not to get too far into the weeds, but we all know that you have you have the the patient that wants services from a clinician or a provider, and in between you have an employer group paying for part of it or most of it, 
Um, you have a broker that's selling that information to the employer group that gets a cut off of that money. And then you have the insurance company within that system. And then you have the hospital system. So how I explained to them was, if you and the doctor are sitting down and talking to each other and they say that you want an MRI, um, you may agree, the doctor may agree, but I'm sorry, if the insurance company doesn't allow you to, or the hospital system that the doctor works for doesn't allow you to have that MRI, you're not getting one. So in that respect, you're no longer the customer. And how I explained to them was the doctor's not at fault here. The doctor wants to provide you whatever they can and work for you, but the doctor doesn't know what the cash price is. There's no way for them to know what the cash price is. So when you go to a doctor and say, how much will it cost to see me? They can't tell you. And that's the reason why, because they in our system, this is what we have in the way. And so I think the light bulb went off pretty well. They kind of understand that what we're doing in our healthcare system is highly impacting them. They can't find cash services where they need it and when they need it. And just like us, they'll end up going into a hospital for something that's serious. Um, and, and then from there, they get home and a bill shows up. They have no idea what that bill would be prior to um, that care. And the other shocker that I found very, very shocked about was they they will travel for healthcare. They'll get on an Amtrak train. They'll do anything to travel for healthcare. I talked to two people while I was there that went to Mexico for healthcare services. I talked to another couple of people that went to Wellbridge in, uh, where's that at, Arlen? Indiana. Indiana, Indiana, Indiana yeah. Wellbridge. So they are going to different places for those costs. And the other thing that I, so what I hoped to provide for them and what I think I provided for them was all of you companies that are members of the Free Market Medical Association in Wisconsin, especially, um, they, get, they got your name and number and location. So they know where you're at um, and what you do. If you're a direct primary care or surgical, whatever, they've got your number. It's, it's there. Um, if you're a national, like uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma or Wellbridge, and you're posting prices and you have those prices and stuff, they have that information as well. So they were shocked to get an entire list of all surgical costs um, from Surgery Center of Oklahoma, for example. They were shocked to get those prices and, and have a list of all of those prices. And what I told them was, um, at the very least, if you don't go to the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, at least look up what the cost should be if you were to go there or to Wellbridge and talk to them, and then go to your local hospital and see if they'll actually cover it at that cost. Um, and, and put some pressure on them locally. I know they probably hate me for that, but that's what I told them. So, and it was a, it was a, it was a pretty good discussion, and um, it was very very enlightening for me to learn from them, and uh, they were very very um, thankful for me and what I had brought to them. And in fact, I have a whole stack of homework. I've got mailings I've got to do. Um, you don't get to just call up the Amish. So a lot of our stuff is through snail mail. And I've got addresses like crazy to, to, to correspond with and, and follow-ups to do. Um, but I, I think we're going to have a long a long uh, relationship going forward in doing this. That is awesome. And I think it's interesting to me that the way that they've accessed healthcare for all of these years, for a long, long time. So once again, some of the similar ways we did years and years ago, right? Uh, a lot right. of that stuff was cash pay. There was no insurance involved. All of a sudden, they're having trouble doing that, and they can't even understand why. 
because right. it makes no sense that a doctor to them, right? Makes no sense that a doctor can't just tell me how, well, how much would it be for this? What do you mean you don't know? You know, it, yeah. I always go back to Dr. Smith telling me anytime they tell you that they don't know what it is, it's because they don't want to tell you what it is, not because they don't <laughs> know what it is. If they've ever done the procedure, and let's be honest, these hospitals have done it many, many times, and these oh. doctor's offices have seen many, many patients, they know how much it costs. Yeah, They're just not going to provide you that information. Uh, we ran into that whenever we stepped away from traditional health, health uh, insurance and moved over to cash pay and medical cost sharing and such. We uh, saw uh, my, one of my wife's doctors, and we said, we're going to be a cash pay. She's like, no. You're not. We don't. We don't take cash. <laughs> what do you mean you don't take cash? She literally said, "You can't afford me." Oh dear. You, huh. We can't afford you. Well, that's pretty damn presumptuous of you. But okay, sure. I'll tell you what. We agree with you. We cannot afford to continue to come to you. We simply huh. cannot afford to. Our conscience won't allow it, and it's time to find another doctor. You're right. We cannot afford to That's keep right. coming to you. So That's she right. talked us right into it. Uh, <laughs> we were just, we were, we were severely taken aback by the fact that she simply was not going to take cash. Just like, no, I mean, she didn't even give us some stupid number. Like it's a thousand dollars a visit. See, I told you you couldn't afford me right now. She's like, no, we don't do cash. Yeah. Her assumption was you couldn't do it anyway. So yeah. It, it was it, it was it was pretty crazy. So I understand in a very small way some of the hurdles that they've had to jump over, and especially not understanding it because we truly I didn't get it. Yeah. I mean, you know, this was a few years ago before I I know, you know, I knew we were a, a small fraction of what I know right now, um, in in all this stuff. I didn't get it. I like well, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Who doesn't take cash? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and that's interesting, you know, the, the Amish are having the same revelation. So, and, um, you know, and, and we also have to understand their cultures and, and I don't claim to understand their cultures, but I do know this, that, you know, they, uh, they're very good at doing care in their own, in their own types of cultures, their own types of care. They're very successful doing that. We have to honor and respect that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're, they're a great example of a community that takes care of one another and is very fiduciously responsible, right? Let's think about that. They're very fiduciously responsible for their community, for each other, and they're not going to go out there and overpay for services. If, right. if we would have been as a country more fiduciously responsible for all the health care that we consume over the years, we may not have seen hospitals, big pharma, insurance companies, all of these things come and kind of put us in the position we are now where, you know, once again, now we're just cogs in a healthcare machine we have no control over and we're spending four plus trillion dollars a year on healthcare. And half of that is unnecessary. Half of that has nothing to do with healthcare. You know, a, qu a quarter of that is administrative. Another quarter of that is uh, just waste and fraud. So there's no healthcare involved there. Uh, I, even two trillion sounds like it's too high, right? But but my my point here is that we're in this machine now that 
we're not getting the benefits. I mean, look at the, the overall health of our country. We spend the right. most by far and get the least results uh, when you look at it overall. Yeah, we two, 2010, we were $2.1 trillion. We're at $4.7 today. And countries like Japan are half the cost of ours. And um, their quality, you know, their service isn't half as good. It's You can't claim that Japan's healthcare is half as good as ours. It's just as good, if not better. And so throwing money at this problem, I keep saying it, is not going to solve yeah. the problem. Right. Yeah. And it, that's proven over and over. Right. It's just proven over and over. Throwing money at it and, can, and thinking that's going to fix things. It never does. But right. that's that seems to be uh, the American way. <laughs> just keep throwing money. at it. Our politicians love to do that, too, don't they? They just love to throw money at it. Doesn't matter. Let's just throw money at it, especially money we ain't got. <laughs> or money that or money that they didn't earn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, they they love spending our money, don't they? <laughs> when, when, when my son was about uh, eight years old, we were trying to explain to him, we were trying to explain to him how the federal government worked and that the federal government uh, works with uh, spending the money of the taxpayers in the appropriate places and managing the country with the money that the taxpayers do. And his eight-year-old brain said, so the so the federal government doesn't have any money. And we said, no, it gets it from the taxpayers. And he said, well, the federal government needs to get a job. <laughs> that, that's, that's, from a, that's from a brain of an eight-year-old. So there you go. Out of the mouth of babes, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, it, that reminds me of, uh, you know, the terminology that, is used out there that uh, all the insurance companies are the payers. Well, mm -hmm. they're not. The payers are you and me and the employers and the employees that are the one. It's our money, right? It's, it's actually our money. We're the payers. Uh, we're That's the only true. real payers. But That's right. who gets who gets uh, listed as the payer? One of the, the payer. Or, or one of the other yeah. ones, right? They're, they're not the payers. <laughs> they're the, let's call them what they are. They're the middleman. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's a really good one, Harlan. Everybody needs, to, everybody needs to take that one to heart, what Harlan just said. That's exactly right. If you're working in a hospital and you hear the word payer, make sure you correct them on what that is. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the payer is is the customer. The payer is the customer. The payer is not Blue Cross or United or any of those guys. Okay, yeah, They're not. Right. Um, yeah. So, And, and that once again goes to what you said earlier, where your insurance company gets to decide what kind of health care that you receive regardless of what you and your doctor believe, but you're the one that actually paid the insurance company. And, you know, I think people lose focus of that so many times. That's right. That's right. Okay. Man, I sure have enjoyed having you on here. I appreciate your insight on all of the subjects that we touched. I know we were all over the place, folks. Well, that's what uh, coming and being on the health and well power hour can be all about whenever you've got so many facets to, uh, uh, what you do and so many irons in the fire, like someone like Doug does, you know, I, I super, super applaud you for once again, being such a great advocate for the free market medical association and, and taking it places where, I mean, I would have never dreamed that uh, 
anyone from our group would have had an opportunity to sit down with a group such as the Amish and share our vision and bring some of the insights to them and learn from them as well, because I think that's a vitally important part of that as, as well as you bringing that knowledge back to the organization and to other folks that you sit down with to share what they do and how they address certain things. I think that's just as important as uh, you sharing our vision with them. So thank you so much for all that you do. I look forward to uh, working with you in the future and continuing on this path that we have together in uh, bringing better access to healthcare to the folks across the country. Thank you very much. All right, folks, don't forget, we got a lot going on at Eagle Care Health Solutions. Uh, remember, if you are in Houston, San Antonio, Austin, uh, even in little bitty Beaumont there, close to the border of Louisiana, we have the new Eagle Care or the Eagle Prime series that is available now. That is built directly around advanced primary care. Uh, you can get that membership for you and your entire family for only $80 a month. That's unlimited access to primary care and urgent care, only $80 a month for your entire family. That includes, of course, uh, any things you may have, such as the uh, need on the urgent care side, like stitches or even the set of a broken bone. Uh, you also get all your primary care, including your annual visits, uh, your virtual care, and also your telemedicine, plus behavioral health and your wellness as far as nutritionist is also included in that. Uh, you can upgrade to include prescription drugs or even catastrophic coverage. All of that's available in those areas. We'll ho hoping to expand into other states and in other areas in 2024. But right now, you can strike while the iron's hot. Go out to eaglecarehealth.com slash prime to learn more. That's eaglecarehealth.com slash prime. Thanks again for joining with us. We'll catch you next time on the Health and Wealth Power Hour. We are out. <laughs>